You're listening to Your Day Brighter, the podcast, Real Reasons to Have Hope in This World. Hi, I'm your host, Tracy Tiernan, and I have a riveting, powerful, and important story to share with you today, a conversation with a young man named Isidore Ruckel and screenwriter Sarah Padbury. And I just want to encourage you, if you or someone that you love has been touched by adoption in any way. This is an important story for you to hear. If you have a heart for children, this is an important story for you to hear. If you or someone that you love has experienced trauma and is in the process of trying to find healing, this is an important story for you to hear. It's it's incredible and and so full of hope. Uh, and I just want to get it out there. So I hope you'll listen all the way through and share it with people that absolutely need to hear it. Let's jump in my conversation with Isidore Ruckel and Sarah Padbury. Welcome to Your Day Brighter, the podcast, and joining me today, um, two new friends that have a very important story to share, and I'm really excited for you to meet them, honored, um, really, to be able to mm. speak with both of you. Please meet screenwriter and filmmaker Sarah Padbury and Isidore Ruckel, who is a, an advocate for orphans everywhere, has an incredible story to share um, your personal story, Isidore, it is breathtakingly hard to hear, and yet we need to hear it. Uh, and you have turned just a, a life that started with so much pain into a, a mission to help others. And I just think that is the most amazing redemptive, <laughs> redemptive thing. And um, before we get to unpacking your story, Isidore, I would love for you, Sarah, um, to lead us in this conversation and tell us how the two of you came to be friends. How did the two of you meet? Well, we actually met in a Starbucks um, unexpectedly in Denver, um, the summer of 2012. Um, I usually write in a Starbucks. I'm a, a writer and an editor. And so I was there minding my own business. And um, I was wearing a t-shirt that says adoption advocate on it. Uh, we are, uh, my husband and I have adopted seven kids, so we are very involved in the adoption world. And um, all of a sudden, this voice next to me says, um, excuse me, do you know anything about adoption? And to be honest, at first, I was a little bit annoyed because I had a lot of work to do. <laughs> but um, then I was like, well, okay, because I do know a lot about adoption. Those usually lead to really long conversations. Um, but I, I said yes, and he said, well, do you know anything about Romanian adoption? And I thought, hmm, something I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and so he literally just sat down across from me, and we started talking, and we talked for about an hour, and then he left and went to work. And uh, we started seeing each other again and again at Starbucks because it was right across from his work. It's where I went to write, and soon we became friends, and he asked me to help him with a fundraiser to raise money for some of his friends that were back in Romania. So that first conversation, he told me he was adopting from Romania. And so we talked a little bit about adoption in general. And then I helped him do this fundraiser. And it wasn't until 
um, literally he was up there on stage and I saw him transform into this passionate speaker. He came down from the stage and he came back to the sound booth where I was and he was like, what did you think? And I was like, what are you doing? Working the night shift at Walmart. You should be doing this full time. Wow. And he's like, well, I already did an autobiography and I already blah, 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 get interviewed by the press and all this stuff that I didn't know about him. And uh, the more I learned about Isidore and, and his passion for speaking for people, the more I just wanted to help him in, increase that platform because I saw the potential to um, really be a voice for kids, for someone who's been there, from someone who's been there. And so for the last seven years or so, I've managed Isidore's um, speaking engagements and press interviews. And now we're working on turning his life story into a mini series. And so we've been together for seven or eight years now. And to think that Isidore, you approached Sarah because of the t-shirt that she was wearing. We used to have an event called uh, National Reunion every two years. And it was for Romanian adoptees and the adoptive families where they would meet in different parts of the U.S. And the logo that, that she wore reminded me of the event because that was the logo they used for that specific year. But I thought, oh, another Romanian. Um, interesting. That had nothing to do with Romania. And there was a whole different logo to come out to be. God was all over that divine appointment. Um, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. So um, Isadora, can you give us a little history of Romania to help us understand how you ended up being in the orphanage and um, and growing up there? Let me just put it this way. Romania is really so small. Nobody really heard about Romania until Nadia Comunic came through to a perfect chance court. And so that put Romania on the map. But what put Romania even more on the map was the execution of the communist dictator Nicolae Ceausescu and his wife Elena, who were the president and ruled Romania for over, what, 50 years, like an iron fist. And through that, he wanted to make Romania the largest population in the world. And through doing that, he didn't force the law. He encouraged families to have, to have children. For more children they had, the more reward they would receive from the state is what he ended up doing. And the families fell for it. And so when families were giving birth to all these children, children were, I mean, the families were malnourished and impoverished. It was really hard for them to be able to care for them. But because they believed that the state would be able to provide a higher income for each child they had, all these kids were being poured out, but not being able to uh, care for them or afford to even keep them at home. So what families started doing is putting kids into state institutions, hoping that the state could provide better care for them than they could at home. But unfortunately, that led into a devastation and it was kept hidden from the eyes of the world for over, what, 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. So I was put in the institution because I was supposedly got a cold. And, you know, when you get a cold, you go to a doctor to be healed in medicine, and then you're naturally returned back home to your family. Well, in this case, when my grandmother picked me up from the hospital, she noticed on the way home that something was wrong with my right leg. And so she went home and told my mom, and she was upset. So she went back to the hospital to question what happened. I'm sorry, what had happened here? And no explanation, not even communication, not even communicated back or responsive. So a nosy lady that had the same issue explains to my mom, you know what, you can take him to this hospital in Maramures. 
they have been able to provide care for my son. They can do the same for you. So my mom took the word, took me to Maramures to get to Marmatia. For me in Liagan de Copi, which translates to rocking of the children. And I lived there for up to three years old. After that, the state will actually evaluate you to decide what orphanage or what place you really are placed into from there. And because of my disability, I was put into one of the worst institutions, maybe five minutes walk from where I was actually at, at uh, rocking of the children. So when I was put there, the institution was opened in 1979 with about 50 children. And from there, it was supposed to be like a hospital to where these severely ill children could be cared and properly nourished. But instead, children just kept building and building and building to where it became overwhelming. So the care and the nourishment and all that just went straight to drain. How long were you there, Isidore? I lived there for eight years, actually until I was 11 years old. And then from there, I was adopted to the US. What was the typical day life in your life there at that institution? And do you call it an orphanage, an institution? Do you use those words interchangeably? What's the correct way that I should describe In this case, I use more of the word orphanage than I use institution because institution, when I refer to, I think more than just one. But in this case, it was supposed to be a hospital for disabled children. It was beyond a hospital, I'll tell you that much. Um, an average day for at least nine years, and this was during the communist dictator Nikolai Ceausescu, while he was alive, the orphanage was very different compared to the time after he disappeared. Our life was pretty much a repeat history of the same thing. We wake up at five, we are sent into the restroom completely naked because so many of the kids wet the bed. So what they did is undress them, send them to one room. The steps will make the bed. Children will read in one room um, and let her toilet uh, potty things until they were given baths and change of clothes. Usually took about, about two to three hours before they even got changed or cleaned. So they would sit there for, uh, literally naked for all this time. It made no difference if it was winter, fall, spring, or winter, that routine was still the same. Now, due to some kids being super violent and breaking windows, there are days even in the winter we had to suffer through the coolness, through all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of, a lot of beatings during communist time. And the fact is it has nothing to do with the communist dictator. It had to do with the staffs that have worked there for so long. They had gotten used to it that there's too many of them. The only way to quiet them down is to either drug them or beat them. Kids that usually hurt themselves were naturally drugged or put in a straitjacket and left like that until lunchtime. Now, when lunchtime was given, all the kids were fed, working up. After that, it was the same routine. You sleep, you rock, you hit yourself, you put in a straitjacket. And if you were quiet, then you were just left there as a vegetation. Nobody would interact with you. Nobody would even uh, give you glory of satisfaction. It's very rare that you found a staff that actually took interest in you. After the communist dictatorship ended in 1989 through the Revolutionary War, a new director came in, new staff weeks were hired, and uh, two new sectors on the floor were all remodeled and reopened. And on those four, children who were more advanced were placed on those four. And we were one of them. I was one of them that was placed on there. It was from there on that our lives began to transform because of the new educators and the new workers that started working there. Workers that came in to work there for the first time, they were shocked. Some of them were in tears by the end of their shift. 
because they were being bullied by the workers that had worked there because they were showing compassion. And because of their remorse of crying, they just uh, found them weak and um, pretty much told them, if you can't handle it, then get out. But they never quit. They stuck through. But in the end, it's through them that our lives begin to transform, to have development where your, your brain kind of like rewires to have more knowledge of life, of existence. And I got it uh, taken home, God knows how many times, but the one specific time that there's a chapter in my book I called The Seven Angels. And it's funny, I've never even read the book of Revelation at the time. But when I read the book of Revelation, the seven angels, the seven bowls, the seven of everything, I go, what are the odds of that? Seven <laughs> angels that entered my life that helped me tremendously. And to this day, some of them I still talk to and I'm friends with. But one of them took me home one night. And the greatest thing I look back at is this. I see a guy standing on a cross and he's crucified. He's a statue. But as a kid whose eyes are just open to freedom, to seeing what the world is like, and being in parts of Romania, I had never been for before. My eyes are capturing every single aspect of the detail of art that I'm seeing. But the cross drew me and I just stared at it. And I asked one of the ladies, cause there was three of us, no, four of us that night. Why is that man on the cross? And one of them explained, because he died for you. And I said, died for me? I didn't even know what death really was to comprehend. I've seen so many deaths in the orphanage, but to see that someone was going to be hung on a cross, never comprehend my mind. And I said, well, who is he? His name is Mr. Jesus Christ. But that picture never left my mind. And so even when I go back, when I'm in that village, I've gone, God knows how many times, I go back to that scene, to that cross every time, you know. And Sarah, you saw it too, when we went to Maria for the production, um, scavenging. But... That's going to be one of my glorious moments in life in Romania is that I see them and 20, 30 years later that that man standing on the cross kept his eye on me and has worked in my life and God knows how many ways and how many chances that he's, mm -hmm. how many miracles he has given me. That little cross was a seed. And if you look back in time into it, I feel like I am here and we will see each other and communicate further down the line. But now you just get to see this point of picture. Wow. So. God showing you um, through that seed. I love, I love how you describe that. What a moment. What a moment. Isidore, can you tell me, um, you started to have hope for uh, another kind of life and existence beyond what you had known because of these, these new angels that were in your life. Um, was that like the first time that you can remember feeling real love? I actually, I felt love even before that. There was a lady that cared for me. Her name was Maria Petrouche, but she didn't last very long because she was electrocuted while she was making coffee. So she died very quickly, but she was my first, um, first worker that actually cared for me. And then a couple of years later, another woman that came into my life who even made more of an impact on my life. Her name was Maria Onisha. And she is the one that took me home for the first time during communist times. So I never knew what our country was going through. But to step out and going from the orphanage to her house, which is a 10-minute walk, mm -hmm. but it felt like it was an hour walk, is how slow I walked without a brace. There's so many things that I recall during that childhood of going home. And I felt loved by Onisha. 
when she opened her front door of her apartment, it was glory. It was very multicultural uh, colors. It's traditional folk music is what she was. And I instantly, based on her house and the things that I had seen in her home, I fell in love with the traditional folk music. And she made me love, I mean, dinner that night, I met her kids. Her kids and I connected very well on the first night. I'm usually a shy one, but for some reason we all connected. And believe it or not, we're all in touch today. Are you? Oh, I am. Amazing. But that night, she treated me like I belonged at home. I had forgotten about the orphanage. But that night also, her neighbor's kids had seen me uh, walking home and coming to her apartment. So later on that evening, they knocked on her door and said, hey, can he come out and play? And I thought, oh, what do I do? I don't even know how to play, you know? <laughs> they just asked me questions after questions about the life in the orphanage. By the time I went to bed, I felt so loved, so cared, and so comfortable, I had forgotten about the orphanage life. And the next morning, I see her waking up and getting ready. She's already dressed. She's putting her coat ready to leave. And she said, do you want to go to work with me or do you want to stay here with my kids and they can bring you later on? And I said, no, I want to go to work with you. I want to see where you work. I was excited. I was ambitious. So I got dressed as quickly as I could. And boom, we headed out the door. I did not realize that her work was actually at the orphanage until we hit the gate. When I saw that gate, I broke into tears. I had cried for most of the day and the workers were just annoyed by it because, you know, this kid comes back and now he's spoiled and now he's crying and he won't stop. So she said, if you don't stop, I can never be allowed to take you home again. So I stopped and I went home uh, a couple more times with her. From there, the other workers started taking me home. And then when the new ones came in, that's how gradually I came to know the seven angels and I got to go home with all of them. Mm. But I have felt loved uh, by so many there. My life dramatically changed and I feel like I was given the opportunity to exceed a little bit further than others. I don't know why, but I seem to have attracted the workers that I had, uh, what would you call in English? Someone that's a player, in other words. You <laughs> have charisma. He could, Stumped yes, he had little yeah. kid charisma that he could work the room. <laughs> it's amazing the power of love to heal, isn't it? And how just even one evening away in her home made you forget about what things were like there for a little while and give you some just some some peace i can't even imagine what it was like to have kids want to play and you not knowing how to play can can you describe you you mentioned your leg what is the nature of the the issue of the leg so i'm paralyzed on one leg without it i walk but it's really difficult mm -hmm. and for example if you go from one one minute walk i'm tired i can't do it anymore i need a break Mm -hmm. So in 1992, my parents tried to get me the, as much help as they could through medical doctors and we found Shriners Hospital and it was through them that they found me best of luck with a prosthetic, not a prosthetic, a careful leg brace. I still have my real leg. It's absolutely paralyzed from polio. I had been infected with polio in Romania when I was in the hospital. So from that, it left me completely paralyzed from my hip all the way to my toe by the brace that I wear now. 
I can walk for 20 hours. I can last <laughs> 20, uh, almost a 24-hour walk without. <laughs> yeah. You're ready for but the <laughs> It's amazing to see that without a brace, how much I'm able to do and how far I can go. Mm -hmm. But with it, it's like I feel natural. Wow. What a gift. Yeah. What a gift. Can you uh, take me to... Um, how did you eventually become adopted? And you had mentioned that uh, what was going on in that orphanage, the rest of the world didn't know about it. Uh, this was like a secret, but the secret got out. Can you tell us um, how that happened and how that eventually led to you being adopted? The execution of the communist dictator was televised worldwide. American journalists were flying all across from all over the world to cover the story. There's a specific guy that got hold of ABC 2020 while they were in Romania covering this communist um, revolutionary war. And he got to them somehow and he explained, do you wanna see a really bad orphanage? No, we've already seen them. No, I don't think you understand me. This is hidden from the eyes of the world. You have not seen nothing like it. So that a producer that was covering the story finally gave in and said, we'll check it out. Well, she checks it out and comes in and through that covers a story. The first one that comes out in 1990 called Shame of a Nation. And through that story covers the worldwide epidemic of the world responding to want to go to Romania for adoption, donate medical supplies, any possible way for the world to help, they responded. Then this guy pops up and he watches it. Uh, John Upton, he is so motivated and compelled by this story that pretty much by that night he makes the choice tells his wife i am flying to romania wow. so four days later he packs up and leaves to romania but before all that happened uh of course this was already after the revolutionary we started to watch a tv show called dallas the rich the corrupt and all that jr we loved <laughs> the show it yeah. transformed it it was a fairy tale of America that we all dreamed of. Green grass, the luxury. We didn't even know what luxury was. We just thought what we saw in luxury was beauty. And we thought that was heaven. So when the Americans come to Armenia with all these adoptions and broadcasts and all these, we wanted to leave by then. The show was intriguing enough for us to create a mentality of our own of what America really looked like wow. based on the show. So John Upton flies to Romania and he is the biggest spectacular that becomes of the entire orphanage. We have had many people that have gone in and out of the orphanage, but nothing to compare to John because he played with kids. He communicated with kids. He came on a daily basis, like he had become one of the steps working there. So he built a really good relationship with all the kids and all the kids just loved him. Well, we started realizing he wasn't here to work. He wasn't here just to visit. He was here to take kids to America. So he was working very quickly on that. But we didn't know that from kids until later on. But the first girl that leaves the orphanage was a girl that was blind, Anna Ostash. That was the most devastating day. It's like death came and sunk in in all of us. To see that we were all left behind and that she got taken was probably second hardest thing I dealt with in life. But he came back. And in that time, I knew, me and a couple of other kids that he had picked up, we were going to America. When he did that, 
we all got left behind again. Hmm. There was Isabella that went to America instead. And then by then, we weren't as devastated. For some reason, I think um, emotional and physically, we're getting used to it. But Anna Ostas was the biggest shock. I mean, it shocked the staff, everybody. The whole orphanage was so quiet. I have never seen an orphanage so quiet that I have lived there from beginning to the end. Told me through another interpreter, there's family that's coming to visit you next week and they're going to be your family. I was like, oh. I didn't understand it really, but I was like, okay. And then it does happen. This lady walks in and one of the nurses says, Isidore and Cyprian, come here, you're going to America. And then I remember seeing two Americans. We call them the tall American and the short American. <laughs> and I really love that story because it becomes so grown on me and they become very uh, popular when I tell the story. But the tall American was my mom. She was the most emotional I've ever seen. And she still can be today. <laughs> but it's like she saw me walking. She just started crying. I'm like, oh, what do we do? Why is she crying? And then we went to the office, started talking. She just was not stopped crying. And I finally asked the interpreter, why is she crying so much? And she said, because I'm so happy we found you finally. Oh. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how to react to that, but okay. <laughs> And then somewhere down the conversation, I asked, who's going to be my family? Who's going to, who, which one's my mom? You know, they turned it to, uh, who do you want it to be your mom? And I thought, well, who's my mom first? You know, I think my mind, even as a kid, not realizing, I didn't want to give out the wrong answer. And so I was like, well, who do you want it to be your mom? Well, who is going to be my mom anyway? I am. Then that's who I want. I was like, oh my gosh, she started crying like someone had died. And I thought, <laughs> Oh, did I just give out the wrong answer? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. So through that, I became adopted in 1991. It was a long process for it. Finally came through. Finally came through and you became, you came to America and part of the Ruckel family. Correct. And life was very different from the orphanage or from Romania in general of what I was used to seeing. Within three days, I was already troubled. I'm going to pause right there and uh, just say thank you so much for listening to the podcast, Your Day Brighter. I'm your host, Tracy Tiernan, and I hope you're enjoying this incredible conversation and hearing the amazing story of Isidore Ruckel and his great friend, Sarah Padbury. Uh, we're going to get right back to it in just a moment, but I just want to say thank you for being here. I hope that you'll share the podcast with people that need to hear it. I hope that you'll leave a review so that other people can find it. And absolutely, please do subscribe and spread the word. Isidore's story is incredible, and I just want to do everything I can to get more and more people to hear it. Let's jump back in. Isidore is now three days in to life with his new adopted family, the Ruckel family in America. It was my mom's birthday for Halloween. Then she wanted to take us all out for lunch. The communication was really hard because she did not know. None of my family knew Romanian. I really knew English little, but not even enough to understand the conversation. All over a seatbelt. I did not want to put a seatbelt on because in Romania, when we went into the car, 
I would have made you put a seatbelt on. You just went in and rode. My parents were trying to explain to me that it's the law. You have to wear it, you know. So it became such an argument that we turned back home. And then we had Isabella and I, who is another adoptee from Romania. We had our own little fight. And uh, pretty much it ended up being that I fell asleep. The interpreters came in that night and explained what it was. But... Hmm. My life sure was not what I expected in the U.S. from the orphanage. I think it's because when you grow up as a child from infant to the time you can remember to the present you leave, that is your home. You can be 20, 30 years into your life, even 50 years old. That life is never going to leave you. And you're always going to constantly think about that life as well. But Hmm. things became even more challenging. When I hit teenagehood, I became rebellious. I wanted freedom. And I think that seeing my all my friends in the neighborhood staying up, going out, and doing their own things, I wanted that freedom. And it created such an escalation that every time we tried to talk, it'd be an anger of hate. So it was really better off not to talk to me. Mm. And then, of course, during that time, I wanted to go back to the orphanage, and I wanted to live in the orphanage. I had even written letters to the workers asking if I could live with them till I was 18. Wait a minute. All of them said no. I have to press pause on this because that is just stunning to me. So you were adopted. You're living with your new family, but this, this, this rage, this frustration um, is growing inside of you so much so that you are actually longing to go back. To the orphanage. Yeah, to live in the orphanage. Because that's what you knew, and that was your normal. That was normality for me, and that was what I was used to. Yeah. Uh, oh. In other words, they rejected me, but my parents never showed me the letter. They didn't want me to be hurt by it, but somehow it came out, and I found out about it. And I think the explanation of my mom's, my mom's explanation of why she didn't show it to me uh, made me be- feel better. Instead of accepting positive things that will heal you and recover you, negative things recover me easier than positive. So in other words, of course, it wasn't put like this, but I'm just putting it into a perspective quick way. Nobody wants you. Nobody wanted to help you. So nobody cares about you. Oh, okay. It actually made me feel better. But if you were to explain it to me with compassion, like, it's just really hard. They can't afford it. It would have made me more angrier. Mm. So I think that some ways my mom learned how to communicate with me that would eventually get me to understand it. I understood more negative than I did positive. Mm-hmm. Of course, that did grow out of me eventually. It didn't stay like that forever. Obviously, I'm looking at just um, this this amazing, I see your compassion. Um, I see your life, your vibrancy, even as you're sharing your story and um I'm just really struck by some of the deep lessons um, there for people, you know, who have deep wounds in their lives that sometimes even the um, the opportunity to have real love, it's almost suspicious of it, right? Like pushing, pushing it away and you could respond easier to rejection because it's what you knew and what you grew up with. Um, Correct. But you are a man who has experienced great healing 
in your life as well. Um, it's it's really um, fascinating to hear you share your story and to see your friend, Sarah, who I know knows you so well, um, <laughs> knows your story so well. Sarah, to just watch your face and your smile and to just know that you are in this story with Isidore. I wanna, for a moment, ask you, because I know that you and Isidore went back, you went to Romania together and you got to see uh, the orphanage. Can you tell yeah. us about how that happened and your experience and what that was like for, for both of you? Um, when we, when Isidore asked me to write the screenplay for his life story, um, we decided that we had to go, I, ha I had to go see the real place. I had to go see where he'd come from. And we also wanted to interview, I wanted to interview um, some of the some of the old, old friends that didn't make it out of Romania, as well as some of the old workers there, some other Romanians that helped, uh, were a big part of the kids' escape. So in 2016, uh, Isidore and I went to Romania and we went to the actual orphanage, which by then was an abandoned building. Wow. And we got permission to go inside. And um, it was very haunting and um, hard to do. And we also took a couple of Isidore's friends, um, two or three of them. Did Maureen go with us too? Yeah, he did. Anita, yeah, Anita and Cardosh and Maureen all went to the orphanage with us. And just to walk around and, and they would talk about their stories and this room, this thing happened and that room, that thing happened. And, and it changed for me um, this just children's story into these are real people. These, are, these were real children. Um, some of their friends that died, other ones that are left behind. And it just changed the story from being one of oh, let's just talk about this great um, adoption narrative to really recognizing the trauma in it. We have this thing in adoption called Gotcha Day. And it's the big day that the kid comes home and it's treated like a really big celebration. Some families have adoption parties or Gotcha Day parties every year as their kid grows up, uh, like a birthday party. But what's missing in that narrative is that the only reason adoption happened is because a child suffered a horrendous loss. And there's a saying that says adoption loss is the only trauma where the whole of society expects the victim to be grateful. We're supposed to, they're supposed to be happy and thankful and this new family's been made and isn't it pretty. And the truth is trauma doesn't heal on a pretty bow like that, you know, all wrapped up. Right. And um, so getting to meet the people, the more people I meet that are involved um, in Isidore's story, the more I could just see that dealing with trauma is like a lifelong issue. That's one of the issues we hope to tackle in the limited series, but also just in as an influence on the world and understanding what it is kids need to really heal mm. and that adoptive families aren't the savior. The savior is the savior, and an adoptive family um, has a piece of a, a role to play, a very important role to play. Kids should not be in institutions; they should be in families. Um, but that, but that's not enough. Just, just a, a, a geographical move is not enough. Hmm. Um, 
and myself being a seven-time adoptive parent, you know, I've I've had to give up some of my own fairy tale narrative uh, that I bought into 20 years ago, 23 years ago when I started adopting, and just realized that um, this is a journey, and uh, people, these kids need people who are willing to get in the mud and be in it for the long haul, and um, and know that they're worth it. Know that they're valuable, real human beings and treat them as people from six years old, not waiting till they're 20 years old, you know? I have some friends who have adopted who could attest to what you just said about, boy, you've got to give space for the healing of that trauma, that it's not everything is fixed now because you have uh, a loving family. It is definitely a journey of courage and faith and uh, boy, I, I just, um, I pray that your story um, is just, just get out there, um, that people get to hear and learn and see. Um, we're going to transition in, in just a few moments to hear about your life's passion now. But, but what I want to talk to you about first, um, I love what you said, Sarah, about, you know, the adoptive family is not the savior. The savior is the savior. And Isidore, you talked about even with the love of an adoptive family, there was still so much pain. How did you find healing and how did you find faith? As far as my faith, um, my parents always talked about the Bible. And we went to church. We grew up in a Christian home. But through the teenage, um, you know, you don't always follow. But somewhere in that mind, um, he's a self-conscious. Like he talks to you. And you know what you're doing is wrong. And you feel like you can hear him. It's like, I know. Just let me do what I want to do and let me have my freedom. You know, and that's what my battle with God was um, through a lot of that time. <laughs> my recovery really started happening after I took my trip to Romania. And when I wrote letters to so many organizations to help me find my birth parents, but primarily to be able to go back to Romania, to see the staffs, the kids that I grew up with, and to see my own institution again. Nobody responded except one lady. Connie Chung responded. She wrote me a really nice letter, and she recommended, Isidore, I wish I could help you, but this is not my jurisdiction. Why don't you write to 2020? They have covered so many of your stories. I'm sure this would be another intriguing story for them. So I wrote to Bravo Walters, Hugh Downs, Janice Tomlin, and Tom Gerald. They got the letter eventually, because Thanksgiving Day, when we are at my grandma's house, somewhere throughout the day, my mom tells me, so, did you get a call from 2020? <laughs> so we talked and we connected after that. They flew me to Romania. I had told them I stay in touch with people. And I think that was shocking for them to find out that I still talk to the colleagues that I grew up with, plus the staffs. And um, they thought, what a great reunion this would be. They found my family within 45 minutes of search. So everything was said. Went to Romania. It was not everything I wanted it to be or what I had hoped for it to be. And especially in my birth family reunion. Through that experience of being in Romania, I pretty much called my mom and said, I'm going to be coming home. And I think that in the back of her mind, it scared her that I would be reject her, my adopted mom, and pick my birth mom over her. Didn't know this at the time, but later on we found out. She called the producer that was covering my story and said, you are responsible if anything happens to him. 
Because throughout the show, I could not figure out why are you so protective? Why do you need to know every detail of my, you know, what I'm doing? And so later on, we figured out why. So uh, looking back and reflecting, uh, I had an angel that was still watching over me without even knowing. (laughs) But when I came back from Romania and I watched the 2020 show a couple of times the night it came out, I wanted to do something. It was at that moment that I knew I wanted to do something for the friends that were left behind. So I called up 2020. Do you know an organization that I can partner with that I could do this with? They recommended one. So they helped me set up my first speaking engagement and they flew out from Houston to California. And from there, it just opened the doors of public speaking. Uh, there and there, not so much, but I attended the national reunion where the logo and everything that reminded me of, and I met Sarah through them. Mm-hmm. It was through that reunion where the doors opened. By then, I had an autobiography um, written, and we ordered the three, I'm sorry, 600 copies. And my speaking engagement had gotten so bright, shared that on the day of my speaking, they had to switch one room to another. And I said, why are we changing rooms? Because you have the largest audience that's been waiting for you to speak. And there isn't even enough room for people. So they're going to be waiting out the hallway. So we have to rearrange the entire room. Wow. I did not know that they're from there. The doors were going to be open for books, for sponsorship, for helping. And people were buying 20 books at a time. And I finally asked, why are you buying so many books? I'm going to help you get this book out and I'm going to get the word out. Well, they did just that. That night of the book signing, every single one was sold out. Through that, being able to do public speaking and talk about the experience of what I went through and what my friends went through, I found recovery of healing and moving forward in life. Now through that, one of the back things that I tried to recover was my relationship with my uh, with God. I wanted to try and stay in a direction, but it's always going to be challenging and always has its moments, but nobody's perfect. We're only humans, but I don't want to let that go. I never wanted to let that go. You know, I always felt like when I learned who Christ was, there was a presence. And sometimes I still feel like he's there to where I believe that God has done more miracles in my life to where there is no way I can say there is no God and that I'm just going to push him away and just let it go, you know? I want to hold on to it and try to do the best of my ability to create the relationship that I can and live the best that I can. But mm. I think that uh, seeing that there are so many other orphans and adoptive families who are going through what I was going through, it helped as well. But one of the biggest things I learned, it was in the Bible, and it was around that trip to Romania after I came back. If you don't forgive others of what they've done to you, how do you expect your Heavenly Father to forgive you? For the things you've done against heaven and i thought well geez i'm not gonna die hearing a grudge or being hard-headed and stubborn and i was very prideful very stubborn and i have an ego that will just erupt if but i've learned <laughs> to swallow that swallow your pride and i've learned to be humble and throughout life i've learned patience i don't have the greatest patience in the world that is true but i've managed to put an understanding to it. But what I'm saying is through that is that don't let pride eat you up. 
don't let your past uh, eat you to where you can't move forward in life. If you dwell on your past and you become the victim of it, then you're going to live as a victim and not only as a victim, but as a victim who's going to be traumatized for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. You cannot blame others for all eternity for the things that went on in your life because they're not solely responsible for the mistakes that went wrong. There wasn't an education for how to be a nurse, at least mm-hmm. a proper nurse for special needs children. There was no training for workers how to work with 500 children versus 100 staffs. You have to put those into perspective and understand that it was just as difficult for them as it was difficult. A lot of people say that it is inhumane how they beat kids. They deserve to go to hell. They deserve this. They don't. Nobody deserves death. Nobody deserves hell. And I have stayed in touch with so many of them. And I believe that many have carried the conscience of guilt for what went wrong. And because they have their own kids, they have learned from their own um, trials, struggles, tribulations as parents to know what it's like. And I forgave all the workers and I moved forward. And I mean, when I forgave them, I felt like a feather. The burden was taken off me. And not only that, um, when I see them, I don't carry that anger or hate when I see them. So I know that's like, I'm sorry that you feel this way, but I don't hold grudges for long anymore. It's one thing I've learned. Okay, the world is short. I'm angry. Let me be angry for a moment. And then an hour or two later, I'm mad anymore. No, I'm fine. It's over. <laughs> what can I do? It's a damage that's done, and you just got to make the best use of it. Isidore, you're dropping so much wisdom right now. You are a free man. I, I mean, just dropping so much wisdom. Um, thank you for that. I, I, uh, I know we only have a few moments remaining, but I, I want people to hear about your vision for um, this project, for this series that you guys are hoping that you will have actually produced and made. It's an incredible story that needs to be shared, that people need to hear. And what I'm hearing from you, the passion behind it, is you're advocating for those that have been left behind, advocating for children all over the world that find themselves um, feeling abandoned and rejected, children that are suffering, that need to know love that need to know that they are valuable and important and precious in the eyes of God to, to get, to get that message out to them, to get people connected to them that can help them. You guys are advocating for kids everywhere by sharing this story. Tell us about the series um, and where you are in the process of, of having this made and how we can help, how we can help you guys accomplish that. Sarah, I'm going to let you take over that one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Isidore is the title of our limited series, and it's a coming of age story uh, that follows a disabled orphan's um, escape, um, which is Isidore in our case. Um, So not only though is the limited series about Isidore's life and about how he moves from being this person who's not even treated as a human being to discovering that he has value and has meaning. But it also is going to address these issues of 
um, breaking the fairy tale narrative that uh, kids, once they're placed in families, have this um, beautiful, perfect ending. And what does that mean? And where do how do kids really truly heal when they grow up and figure out that they're still not free? They're mm -hmm. still trapped. Um, and then it also follows um, the people who stepped in and helped. Um, we could do a, a movie just about Isidore, but the reason we're doing a limited series is because his story is even bigger than just him. It's about the people who took seriously to whom much is given, much is expected. And whether they have a lot of power or a little power, they decided they were gonna step out and make a difference when they heard about these kids. And synergizing all that power, if you want, or um, the abilities that different people have and bring to the table made a difference, not only in these kids' lives, but it changed the world. It changed international adoption. Um, it, thousands and thousands of children ended up being adopted from Romania, and, and that was part of a wave of adoption across the world at the time. Mm. Um, so those are some of the themes that we're covering in the actual series. Wow, powerful. And you guys are, think, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna add to that. I think that the limited series is also a series of hope that you are not alone in the world, not the only one who has gone through it, but also the people who have worked in institutions or that continue throughout the world that, oh my gosh, this is me. This is really describing what I do. And then through that, you see the transformation and the people changing and how the development that is done, the people become become changing themselves. Like, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to do this. But the ones that are uh, abandoned, because a lot of the children who grew up in orphanages, institutions are now on the streets and there is no help for them. Nobody cares for them. They're mm -hmm. solely trying to survive in every way they can. But for them, it would be, there is hope. Someone's coming. And I want the world to know that though we struggle and though we face challenges, that we want to make a difference. And my passion in the future through the series is that I am hoping to create like a, a big home and take some of my friends that I grew up with, put them in one place for me living with there with them, but also to create another facility for the homeless that grew up in institutions that nobody cares about and they have no absolute chance in life because they're rejects. So there's a lot of passion, there's a lot of opportunity, but the series is gonna be a long-term educational thing for social workers, adoptees, adoptive parents all across the world. And that's why it's so important. And I'm passionate to really get this turned into something because you know, in timing, I would like to leave something as a legacy behind too. Yeah. I'm a great father. It's like you have this heart of a father. Oh, no, 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 no father. Oh, I see. <laughs> well, we, you know, beyond box office goals, you know, the trope of the orphan has been used by Hollywood over and over and over again. Yeah. And our goal is to turn that trope on its head and say, we aren't just supposed to use kids for a nice little story. This is actually real life. These are real people. Yeah. And we want the series to be the beginning of a broader effort where Imagine a world with no orphanages, that we don't put kids in orphanages. Imagine a world where government's reputations are based on how they treat the most vulnerable in their society, their children, rather than their domestic product, you know, their G G 
what's the word that I'm trying to say? GDA, gross domestic product, GP. I know. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you. Or, or how big a military they have, you know, that the most important thing is how do they treat kids? Yeah. And so there's some big system changes that we believe need to happen and can happen in this world. And that Isidore's story could be a part of that and a part of a conversation piece um, to show the reality of it and to give hope that there are answers and there are things we can do better. We can do better in the world. We can do better in the world. Amen. From, from your lips to God's ears. Imagine a world with no orphanages. I just. It would be nice. But I think it's important for the people to know this message too. Romania has come long ways in the last 30 years. They have changed dramatically. The problem is that they don't have enough social workers to deal with the amount of trouble, with the amount of abandonment and neglect that we currently still have in Romania. Situations that we still have currently about 70,000 abandoned uh, children in Romania. But most orphanages have been closed and there is some new laws that have taken place. There are government officials that really believe in the hope of children and their children's rights. There are Romanians who are fighting for the human rights within the country. Inner country adoption has opened. And I think it's very important to, for people to understand that the country has made a great improvement in the last 30 years. It's not mm. the same as it was. But if people want to learn more about Isidore's story, we do have a Facebook, social media, Instagram, Twitter. You can message us, have any questions. We'll be more than happy to answer. Uh, mm -hmm. Please help us share the page uh, on the social media, on Facebook especially. Uh, we are trying to raise funds for the limited series production. And currently we are working on possibly going to Romania in the summer of August if everything goes with right. Um, we have hope to have production meetings within the Alliance of Romanian Production. Also with um, government officials yeah. coordinate and correspond with them to create an alliance to work with them for the production purpose, but also to do more investigating on the institution and other matters of scavenger hunting filming is what it's called. But we hope to do this trip in August. And um, I think that if people want to follow our story, it's great. We'd love to hear from you. Social media is going to be our greatest one. Facebook is probably going to be the easiest that we constantly check. Stay in touch. You've been touched too. Thank you for that. And we'll connect. We'll put all of your social media platforms um, on the broadcast so that people can see how to connect with you directly. Um, I just... Um, I just love your your passion, your willingness, your drive to want to help other people. You know, for a lot of people who've come through any kind of trauma, it would be amazing enough to just get to the other side of that and still be breathing, you know, and feel like you got through it with your life. Um, but then there's people um, like you who want to go back and get others and and bring them bring them through and bring them hope. And I just that affects the heart of God in that. God bless you guys. I I'm I'm all in, and I just want everyone to hear your story. And you can bet I'm going to be praying for you for everything that you guys need um, to have this project funded and the strategic connections and meetings and alliances with people in positions of authority and power that can make real change happen in the world. 
for kids. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you guys both so much. God bless you. Um, Isadorruckle.com, I know, is uh, one place that people can find you. Um, yes. I find you on Facebook. Uh, Isadora Ruckle will connect people in that way. And um, may I just um, may I just pray? May I just pray for you? Please. Of course. Sorry. Of course. Gracious Lord, I just, I'm just in awe of how you move and you work and how you're able to bring goodness and hope and beauty through so much pain and suffering. God, only you're the only one I know that does that. And I thank you that um, Isidore can even see how you have worked so many miracles in his life. Thank you, God, for how you've always had your eyes on him and bringing him through. Thank you for his strength and his resolve and his passion. I pray for his continued healing and growth and his deep, deep relationship with you, um, that it would grow, that it would bloom. I thank you for the divine connection and friendship with Sarah. And I pray, God, that um, you would bless her writing, um, give her what she needs to be able to, to bring to life something that is just so important and so precious and so close to your heart. I'm thinking of your word, God, where you you talk about how religion that is is pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans. God, we, uh, we know that this is so close to your heart. And we pray that this would spark a movement all around the world to rescue children um, and to give them hope. God, would you do it? Would you do it in our lifetime? Would you use... Isidore and his story. Give him energy, give him courage, um, give Sarah and Isidore um, just the strength and endurance that they need to keep on fighting the good fight. And I thank you, Lord, for our time together. I give you thanks in Jesus's mighty name. Amen. 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 Thank you. Your Day Brighter is produced by Brighter Media Group, Tracy Tiernan, and John Lawhon. Editing by Julie Gilligan. Make sure you're subscribed, leave a review, and tell us what you think of the podcast. And make sure you share it with someone who needs encouragement today. Thanks so much for listening. And tell somebody your story today, or better yet, ask to hear their story.